so great to see you this day on this Lord's Day, a day in which our Lord Jesus has provided for us to come together as His people and give Him the glory that is due His name. And I've just got to say, this corporate gathering of the people of God and to hear you all sing is such a beautiful thing, such a beautiful reality of what God has called us to be and do as the church, to sing to Him, to sing together, and by extension, encouraging one another. I hope you've had a great week as you make your way to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and if you are a guest with us, we especially want to welcome you here today. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you are with us. I pray always that you watching this, dear friends online, is not a drive to, but a drive through, and that wherever you live, that you are searching vehemently for a Bible preaching, gospel preaching body of believers where you can rub shoulders visibly with the people of God and be able to be used by God to minister to that body and allow that body to minister to you. So glad you're with us today. So grateful that you are, but we pray that God would lead you to a specific body somewhere. Now, also speaking of a specific body somewhere, I didn't know Tony and his wife Beth were going to be here today, but we want to extend a word of welcome to Beth and Tony Lissetto and their family. Uh, Tony is the lead pastor at Gateway Old Church in Brooklyn. He and his wife Beth and their family are doing a great gospel work there in Old Brooklyn. And Tony grew up right here at Pleasant Valley Church, and we pray for the you, brother, and for the work God is doing there uh, every single week, and we're so glad that you're here today. Also, also, if you're here and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jordan. I have the joy of serving as an elder and as our lead pastor here at PVC, and we welcome you. We hope that you'll take that card on the back of the pew in front of you and let us know how can we minister to you. All of us have a next step this morning, and maybe your next step is to reach out to someone, let us come alongside you and encourage you as you seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all that you are. Acts chapter 2, let's pray together. Our God, we thank you this day again for the beauty of gathering together as the people of God and being able to glorify you and recognize the very reason we were made is to worship you, to adore you, to follow you, to be able to join together with brothers and sisters in local congregations to absorb all the good things that you are in our lives. God, thank you for the means of grace, for your word, for the ordinances, for the encouragement that we get as brothers and sisters as we are seeking to allow your gospel to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives. And then it would mark our body because a gospel-centered church is full of gospel-centered people. So we ask, God, that you would use your word today to awaken us to your goodness, to your sovereignty, to your beauty. And we've sung truth, but God, that's not enough for you. You want us to be doers of the word. So we ask, Holy Spirit, now that you would give us your glasses, your spectacles, as we look to the word of life, that you would nourish us. We're hungry. We're hungry for the word to be preached. And we ask that you, Jesus, would be glorified. For to you belongs highest praise. Would you tell Jesus right now where you're at? Would you just tell him, Jesus, I praise you. You are worthy. You are worthy. And then would you say, Holy Spirit, open up the word of God to me today. May I leave change because of the word going deep into the recesses of my soul and that the consent of my will would be under the tutelage of you as I go back to where I'm going to work, where I'm going to eat, where I'm going to play, where I'm going to go grocery shopping, and may I be a beacon of your love and your light to a world that desperately needs you. 
We love you, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for making him so real in our lives, and we thank you, Father, for adopting us. Would you adopt someone else today for your glory, for their eternal good? We prayed in Jesus' name. And we all said, today we begin a mini little three-part series, having come out of a year-long study through the book of Colossians. Those 30 sermons that we walked through from September 2022 to last week were rich, I pray informative, and transforming in your life. And now in between there and Nehemiah, we're going to begin the book of Nehemiah on the 10th of September. In between those two long series, we're going to spend just a few weeks looking at growth. Would you say growth? Particularly gospel growth. We're going to look at what the gospel does when it informs a people, when it transforms a people, and then it begins to form a people. So the gospel, it informs you, and then it transforms you, and then it begins to form you individually, and then form of people that have all been brought together because the good news of the gospel has been believed by them, embraced by them, and even now is transforming their character into a better image of the Lord Jesus Christ. How they think, how they feel, how they talk, and what they do. That Jesus is getting deeper in you, and by result, he's beginning to flow more freely through you. And friends, that is the work of the gospel. That it doesn't just give you eternity and the assurance of a right standing with God, although it does, but it also begins to shift and transform everything that you are, not outside in, but inside out. That your heart now has been transformed, and therefore your feet, your eyes, your ears, your body, everything begins to reflect the new heart that you've been given when you were born again. So when the early church movement began, i.e., the church was born, in her infancy, it was a supernatural, beautiful reality. And thanks be to God that we have it written down, we have it preserved, and we have it in front of us now so that we can see the true testimony of how that first group of followers of Jesus lived and acted, and actually what their gatherings looked like, and that our gatherings and the way we do body life should mirror the principles there. And so we're going to walk through Acts 2, this chunk of text, and then next week, 41 to 47, and then the third week, we're going to bring it all together. But I want you to notice in Acts chapter 2, the apostles, the first band of disciples, the apostles are waiting in a, in a place called the upper room. Now, they're waiting there because they were given instruction by Jesus when they wanted him to bring the kingdom. Now, he said, I want you to go and I want you to wait until you are clothed with power from on high that then you can go and you can proclaim the good news of all that I have done, all that I've shown you, and all that I've taught. So Acts chapter 2, notice verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost is a Jewish festival. It had arrived. There's a swirl, swir swirling of crowds of people there, upwards 100,000 people, something like that, that have gathered for this Jewish festival. They were all together in one place. Now, this is the, the, the ones who are waiting as Jesus gave instruction. In verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, the ones in that room, and rested on each of them. And so there's this mighty, rushing, tornadic-like wind that blows through this place. There's a, a fire that comes into this room, and it divides, and it begins to settle. Notice what it says there, on each one of them. The idea is, is your waiting is over. Jesus said, I'm going to send him. I told you to wait on him. And now I'm telling you, he's here. The Holy Spirit is here. And this is 
something that is worth noting because the manifest presence of God, the intimate presence of God, is now resting on individuals. This is important historically. This is important because as revelation progresses in the Bible, as God progressively reveals His nature and His character and who He is, up to this point, He manifested that presence not in such a massive group like this. In fact, throughout the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, He is working primarily through individuals, empowering them for service, both spiritual and physical service. Think about the temple being built and the Spirit of God giving them the physical power to build this beautiful structure. The Spirit of God's intimate presence was in the tabernacle, in the uh, temple, but, but now there's a shift here. There's a shift here because this shift means that the Holy Spirit is now, God is intimately going to dwell upon and then within believers from this day forward. And so the first part of, of this really comes to head. Notice verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that is important for you to note here is Luke also wrote a gospel, the gospel of Luke. And in the gospel of Luke, we record or we see the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus in His ministry, He is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that which He did. In fact, at Jesus' baptism, Luke doesn't record it, but in Matthew chapter 3, 13 to 16, when you think about Jesus' baptism, friends, you should think about a coronation ceremony. You should think that the king is being coronated. He's going public. He's being recognized. He's being validated that this is God's son. This is the king. This is the savior of the world. And we know this is true because in Matthew 3, 13, Jesus goes down in the water, he comes back up, God the Father, a voice comes, says, this is my son, listen to him, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him, and the very next text in Matthew's gospel, and then also in Luke's gospel, the same author, says the, the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and from this moment forward, you begin to see Luke's theology or his understanding of the Holy Spirit and how he, the third person of the Trinity, worked in the life of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And I want you to notice Luke chapter 4, notice on the screen, same author, he says, and, and, uh, and Jesus returned. And the power of the Spirit, notice the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written. Notice the first thing Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He, the Holy Spirit, has anointed me to proclaim the euangelion, the good news, the gospel to the poor. So the first steps of Jesus' ministry, as He begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, namely the gospel, those are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what, what Luke is doing here when he writes the book of Acts is he is simply saying the same Spirit that gave Jesus proclaiming power to give the gospel to those who were under His care, that same Holy Spirit is going to empower you as you've waited on Him so that now you have power to proclaim the very message that Jesus not only taught, but that He lived. So here in Acts 2, um, Luke wants to make it really clear that the ministry of Jesus continues. So this is not Jesus goes to heaven and kind of this modalistic 
God the Father did his part, he's gone. God the Spirit, or God, God the Son, he did his part, and now we have God the Spirit. No, this is Jesus Christ continuing his ministry through his followers as they are clothed with power from the Holy Spirit to carry out the teachings and the life of Jesus, the very Spirit who Jesus himself depended on to do the very same thing. And so, what happens in the narrative, back to Acts 2, for those of you who know your Bible, people are flabbergasted by this. The crowds are flabbergasted. They say, these people are drunk. Look how they're acting. Speaking in languages they don't know, they're hearing languages they don't. These people are drunk. And Peter's like, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. And he stands up, Peter does, as the leader of the twelve, and he gives this powerful sermon beginning in verse 14. I'm not going to go through it, but in chapter, chapter 2, 14 to 36, he gives this powerful sermon, and he lets the crowd know exactly what has just taken place. But I want to encourage you to read, read Peter's sermon here. There's three things I want you to note as you read it, I hope, this week. Number one, Peter's sermon, is, this is not in the notes, but his sermon was scriptural. The main sections of Peter's sermon, there's three sections in his sermon. The first section is centered around Joel 2. The second portion is centered around Psalm 16. The third portion is centered around Psalm 110. In other words, Peter uses the Word of God to proclaim the gospel. He doesn't make a bunch of stuff up. He, he uses the Word of God to preach and proclaim the gospel. Can I just remind you? that it is the Word of God that pierces the human heart. Can I just remind you it's not your testimony that pierces the human heart? As great as that is, I'm glad God did that in your life, but that's not inspired, okay? Not the way the Word of God is inspired. So if you're going to proclaim the gospel in a personal way, in a group way, it ought to be pregnant with Scripture. It should be pregnant with the Word of God because the Word of God is a mirror. It will show the people who are you are proclaiming their sinful condition before God. The Word of God is a hammer. It hammers out the hard part in a person's life. The Word of God is a sword. It whoosh, cuts through all the fluff people want to give you as to why they don't need to believe the gospel. So make sure, like Peter, if you're going to give the gospel to someone, it's got to be scriptural. Second of all, it's clear. I mean, in very short words here, Peter talks about Jesus, sin, sovereignty, crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, lordship. So we must be clear. Your job when you share the gospel is not to make it cool, but to make it clear. People need to understand how to be made right with God. And you must, I must, as Peter does, take the Word of God and make it clear to them what their Creator is not asking of them, but demanding of them, namely that they would repent and look to Jesus alone. The third thing is it's bold. It's not just scriptural. It's not just clear. It's bold. So notice chapter 2, verse 36, and this is what Peter says. It's bold. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, Lord. Lord means God. Lord means sovereign creator. Lord means center of the universe. Lord means absolute authority over all things. And then he says Christ. Christ, that is the only Savior. Not one Savior among many Saviors, not one path among many paths, but Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And Peter says, listen, you killed Him. God made Him both Lord made him Messiah, and he looks right at those Jews, and he says, you killed him. And friends, that is bold. That is bold. And it's the same boldness that has to mark you as you share the gospel. Now, you can't soft dance this thing, all right? 
You can't just kind of, well, I'll just tell a few things and, you know, here, pray this prayer. And then you get them to say a prayer that just, oh, okay, you say this, I'll say this. Okay, you say this, I'll say this. But they have no idea what they're doing. But you're just, you, you kind of want to go back and tell the church, hey, I got one. But they don't really know what they just did. So we've got to make it scriptural. We've got to make it clear. We've got to call people, friends. We've got to call people. You're not, you're not called to call people in a bold way, like maybe I am right now as a preacher proclaiming God's word on a Sunday morning. But you've got to be bold. You finally got to go for it and tell them that Jesus is the only way, and unless they repent, they're going to perish. And I have a t-shirt um, that says, repent or perish on it. You know, when I wear that shirt, we get a lot of conversation at Walmart. Repent or perish. And this is the option. This is the boldness that you must exert and help people understand. So, I, I want to note here, in verse 37... The effect, we haven't got to your outline yet, but this, this is just the introduction. But I want you to see the effect, verse 37, of when a scriptural, clear, bold presentation of the gospel is energized by the Spirit of God. Notice what happens. When they heard this, his sermon, the bold, clear, scriptural proclamation, they were, would you give me that word? Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, this is how cut they were, brothers, what shall we do? It's like a knife went through their chest. The word cut here was used in antiquity, used in Greek literature to refer to the hoofs of, 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 of horses that would march in battle in that that, 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 that sense of pressure. And, and that, that's the word cut here. It's the idea that as, as the Word of God is given to someone, the Spirit of God begins to cut them and put pressure on them and have them feel the weight of what they have done to God in light of their sinful condition. It's the plotting of God. It's the weight of God. Jesus said in John 16, 8, listen, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness. Did you know as you give the gospel, your job is not to convict them? Your job is to give a bold, scriptural, clear witness to the gospel. It is the Spirit's job to convict them. It is the Spirit's job to cut them. It is the Spirit's job to plod them. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. You just make sure, I just make sure, we actually give the biblical gospel. The word convict in John 16 has the idea of a prosecuting attorney. You know, prosecuting attorneys, you know what they do? They present the facts. And the goal is to indict the person. And when you share the gospel, you're actually indicting them. You're indicting them in the sense of you're giving them the facts, and the Spirit of God is convincing them in the moment, I, I need to be saved. Now, Tim Keller gives two things here when it comes to what cut them. What cut them? What cut them? Well, two things Keller says. First of all, these folks realized they were wrong about Christ. They were wrong about Him. They got it wrong. They didn't see Him as Messiah. They didn't see Him as Lord. They got it wrong. That Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the anointed one. And you guys missed it. You were wrong about the identity of Jesus. Who Jesus said he was, he actually is. And you didn't believe him, and you're wrong. Second of all, Keller says, they realized they were responsible for the death of Jesus. So it is for every single one of us who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus came to live and die in the place of his people. He came to live and die in the place of all those who would look to him by faith alone and him alone. That's who he came for. And so God made Jesus, the sinless one, die in the place of sinners. And, and, and the question is, who are the sinners that, that actually joined the Jews in killing him? So don't get anti-Semitic on me and say, well, these Jews, we need to deal with them. That's not about this. This is not about anti-Semitism and we need to get the Jews for killing Jesus. No, you are one of the Jews. I am one of the Jews. We killed him too. We crucified him too. It was our sin. It was our rebellion against God that, that, that invoked him to come, to die. 
So the gospel, as you get to your outline here, there's, there's two works that I want you to note here, two works in, the, in this passage. Number one, the work of the gospel is a divine work. It's a divine work. The first blank there, it's a divine work. Notice 38, and Peter said to them, Peter, the apostle says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the result. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice two things, repent and be baptized. The word repent means to change your mind. But it's more than just a resolve, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Oh, I need, I need to do better. To repent is to change your whole attitude about who God is. Coming to Christ means that you realize that you have been in rebellion against His Lordship, that you're in rebellion against His good order, that you're in rebellion against living the way He designed life to be lived, namely that you're not obeying the commands of God as given in Scripture. And to repent is to recognize Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is sovereign. And I have offended him because my life is not submitted to him, and therefore I repent. It's the idea of I was thinking, I thought this about him, and now I think completely the opposite about him. That's the idea of repentance. Repentance is when you get lost physically, and your spouse says, honey, I think we're lost. And you're like, no, we're not. And you just keep driving, and you just get deeper and deeper and deeper. Then they say, honey, I think we're lost. You say, well, baby, I think, I think it's time that you, you know, take a nap. And then they say, no, we're lost, we're lost, we're lost. You haven't repented yet. To repent is to change your mind completely about the direction you are going. Take the next exit and go the other way. That's what it means to repent. And that's what these guys were being asked, told to do by Peter. You thought this about Jesus turn and look the other way and realize God has made him Lord, God has made him Christ, and you killed him, you're responsible for him, so it is for you and for I. Now, the word here in the text, when it says repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That word for is a really important word, so you could insert the word because would be a more faithful rendering of the Greek. So, that repent, be baptized because, because your mind has changed and you have received Christ. So this is not baptismal regeneration. This is not you get in the baptistry, you weren't a Christian, we baptize you, and now you is one. That's not what this is. What this is is simply making a claim that the first steps of going public with your faith is to get in the baptistry and declare to the people of God that I have repented and I have received Christ, and then you get baptized as a demonstration of publicly identifying with Jesus, but also symbolically showing that your sin has been cleansed and that you are now fully and finally forgiven of your rebellion against God and what you used to think about the gospel. This is why that we think it's a faithful rendering of the Bible to, to be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. Because the first step to your discipleship is baptism, and then we take the Lord's Supper. We'll see next week. This is how they did it, by the way. We'll see it next week. Taking the Lord's Supper as a, as a means of you being a follower of Jesus who has went public with your faith through identifying with Him through the means of baptism. So you're going to see next week. They received the Word, they were baptized, and then they're added to the church. So you don't have to be baptized to be part of the global church. That's faith alone and Christ alone. That's the thief on the cross. But it, to be a part of a local gathering of believers, you need to be baptized as a means of telling that congregation, I get the gospel. I understand the gospel. And that's what he's calling them to here. Notice in 39, for the promise, this promise, if you'll repent and believe, if you'll repent and, re and believe and receive Christ, this is the promise for you. This would be the repentant Jews in the place who were wrong about Jesus and killed Jesus. And then he says, to your children, this would be subsequent generations of Jewish people who would also need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and repent of what mom and dad thought about him. And then finally it says, and those who are far off. This would be inclusion of Gentiles one day. Inclusion of not just Jewish people, 
Aren't you thankful that God made a way for non-Jews to be saved ethnically? Because we wouldn't have a chance right now, right? So praise God, he, he grafted us in, the Bible says, but we've been grafted in. And notice everyone, I love the play on this, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Notice there's tension here. Notice there's tension between the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation, including who's going, who's going to be saved and who his people are, but also human responsibility. Notice everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. His promises for you and for, for all. So underline that word call, call. It's a really important word, friends, call. Historically, when we think about call, it's, it's worth noting that, that there is a, a general call that is given, general call, where the gospel is preached to all. We, go to, we, we give the gospel to every man, every woman, every children. At VBS, every single year, when we have 100 kids in this room, we call all of them to repent and believe the gospel. We're calling them to that in a general way. But then there's what's called an effectual call where some of those 100 are actually going to hear through the ears of faith and actually call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So the call was effectual. It had an effect, although the call was given to everyone. So let me show you this in the text, a couple other texts, when it comes to this idea of calling. Notice verse 30 of Romans chapter 8. Write this in your, in your, in your Bible there. Notice, and, and those whom he, he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, who's doing all of this? One, two, three, four, five, six. My math wasn't always good, but I count six he's. This is a divine word prenatally to eternally. Salvation is of the Lord. I don't know anybody who congratulates themselves for being a Christian because of all the way that they grew up or the fact they were in the right moment at the right time, and they give credit to all of that. No, anybody who really understands the gospel is going to say, I've been saved by grace, and it's grace and grace alone. Here's another passage, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. This is after Paul gives this indictment toward the Ephesian Christians and anyone who would have ears to hear it, that they're dead in trespasses and sin. Notice 4, but God, this is one of the big buts of the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice what He did, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What was your condition, friend, before you became a Christian? You were dead. Deader than a doornail. Spiritually dead. Now, last time I checked, dead people can't improve their condition. If you went to a casket and there was a dead person laying there, and you told the dead person, get up, they're not getting up. They're not getting up because they have no capacity in and of themselves to put life in themselves. But notice in salvation, spiritual death is met by Jesus Christ enlivening the person to see their need for a Savior and therefore causing them to be born again. So you were dead he made us alive. And this is why Jesus said, John 3, I want you to see this. John 3, and this is all under the heading of, this is a divine work. The gospel is a divine work. Jesus said to a very religious man named Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice what happens before a person can see the kingdom of God. They're born again. And when you're born again, now you have new eyes to see the king and his kingdom. And now you run to him and say, I want to be in the kingdom. And he says, well, good, because I want you to be in the kingdom. But call upon me and believe me and receive me and come on in to the kingdom. So you're born again. And you should write this down. 
regeneration. This is the idea of being born again. It's a fancy theological term. Regeneration, it just means born again. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. So at VBS, we, we will talk to the kids about admit, believe, and confess. What the Bible would say about that is the only way they could admit, believe, and confess is they have to be born again first. First. You don't do all that and then get born again. You get born again and then you do all that. Why? Because you're born again. Left to yourself, you would never admit, you would never believe, and you would never confess. So therefore, you've got to be brought back to spiritual life. That would be like looking at a person in a casket and saying, get up, get up, get up. They have no capacity to hear you. Nobody has capacity to hear the call of the gospel unless they are born again and their eyes are open and then they see the king and then they see the kingdom. This is a divine work. And I understand. Some of you that are in this room, you're like, well, 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 what, 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 what? I understand the tension. I live with it every single day when I share the gospel with people. I go out and share knowing that everybody thinks I'm nuts unless God gives them eyes to see and eyes to hear. And I take great comfort in that. It doesn't make me, well, God's going to save whom God's going to save, so I could just whatever. No, he's chosen, as we'll see here, to use human instruments like you and like me, to communicate the gospel in a scriptural, clear, bold way. But if anybody's going to hear it, he's going to have to grab. Think about Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. When someone is saved, when I was 10 years old, the Holy Spirit, via Jesus, via the Father, said to little Jordan, church kid, arrogant church kid, Jordan, come forth. And my eyes opened, and I believed the gospel. This is the order of salvation. So it's a divine work. And in verse 47, we'll see next week, it says the Lord added to the church. So the Lord's doing the adding here. And he'll subtract some later, by the way. He'll subtract some because they, well, we'll get there one day. But second of all, it's not just a divine work, it's a double work. Double work, double work, double work. Yes, God's doing it, but God has chosen to use human instruments to accomplish His perfect will for the lives of individuals. Notice, and Peter said to them, that's the human instrument. Peter said to them, Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself, we saw that, and with many words, 40, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So the means of saving themselves is actually not saving themselves like they're the ones saving, but save yourself by changing your mind about who Jesus was. You got it wrong. Repent, believe, receive Christ. So God is not only, remember this, God is not only in charge of who is saved, but he's in charge of the means by which they are saved. And the means is faithful gospel proclaimers like you and like me. So God ordains both the end, but he also ordains the means. So let me give it to you this way. It's in your outline. Evangelism is the intersection of divine transformation and human proclamation. Evangelism is the intersection of divine transformation and human proclamation. You're communicating the gospel, you're making sure it's clear, you're making sure it's scriptural, you're giving a bold call to repent and believe, but it's actually God transforming the heart of the individual so they will pick up what you're laying down. So think back for a moment when you first embraced the gospel. Do you remember that moment? Remember when you first embraced the gospel? Remember when you first realized such good news this is. No matter what age it was, there was a moment where the light bulb went on. That was the Spirit of God taking the Word of God spoken by the human instrument to cause you to come into the faith. I mean, friends, I could not believe it as a 10-year-old that God would punish Jesus in my place. I mean, that just blew me away. I just could not believe that. Like, I'm the one who messed up. I'm the sinner. I'm imperfect. And yet God in His grace would punish His Son so that I could be in the forever family of God. It just blew me away. 
I'd heard that all my life, by the way. I had the privilege of being in the church 25 times a week, it felt like. But I didn't believe it. But friends, I want to tell you something. The light bulb went on. And so when you share the gospel with someone, friend, God wants to use you. Would you say this? God wants. Say that. Say that. Don't go to sleep. God wants to use me. He does. In gospel proclamation, He wants to use you. He wants you to be a conduit of His Holy Spirit power as you are faithfully giving the gospel to everyone you come across. And friends, there is such a thrill in watching the Holy Spirit work in the moment. It's been a long time since some of us have seen that. It's been a long time since some of us in this room have sat with another human being and we communicated the gospel and we watched God the Holy Spirit work in their life and and God actually saved them and then they say to us, I feel so different now. I just feel so different. The weight of my sin is gone. I just feel so different right now. Have you ever had anybody, you ever had that experience? A front row seat to seeing the Spirit of God grant spiritual life to an individual. It's been a long time since some of us have seen that. It's been a long time since some of us have seen it, and maybe none of us have ever seen it. And rather than guilt you into evangelism, I want you to think about how awesome it would be to be on the front row seat of communicating the gospel and watching the Holy Spirit put a glimmer and a sparkle in their eye, and they're amazed, and they're like, yes, I want it, I want him. And then they're saved, and you're like, wow. Now, you don't go home and pat yourself on the back and say, boy, that was a really good gospel presentation. That's what got him. No, you praise God. That in spite of you, he used you to communicate the truthfulness and the clarity and the boldness of the gospel of his dear son. Unfortunately, some of us have never seen that. Friend, I want to ask you parents, are you preaching the gospel to your children? Are you? You have a friend with a long-term relationship, and you've never told them about Christ. You play golf with them every Thursday. You realize if they don't make it to next Thursday, and they don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. Do you realize that? You feel the, the weight of that? And, 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 and by the way, you can't make them believe anything you're saying, but you can be faithful with the gospel message. So in the Bible, as I see it, as we wrap this up, there's three basic ways evangelism is done. Three basic ways. Number one, there's personal evangelism. We see Jesus do it, woman at the well, rich young ruler. He's engaging individuals with the gospel. He's outlining for them what the kingdom of God is and how to get in the kingdom. We see Peter do it. We see Paul do it. We see Philip do it. We see Stephen do it. We see many people who are giving a personal witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, I want you to think about this right now. I want you to say, how can I this week be more lovingly and intentionally bold with the gospel? This week. I'm not talking about one day when you whatever. I'm talking about this week. How are you going to be intentionally bold with the gospel? It's time to stop playing around. It's time to stop just absorbing all this good gospel content and let God use you, friend. He wants to use you. He wants to use you as a conduit for his gospel of grace to go into the lives of people. They believe it, they'll be saved, and whether they come here, they'll go somewhere, they'll be baptized, they'll join that body, and they'll grow. One day you'll see them in the kingdom. He wants to use you to do that. You're on the front lines, I'm on the front lines of doing that. Now, I'm not saying be cantankerous or annoying to people. If you do that, don't tell me you attend this church. But you're going to have to be bold. Some of us are to the point where we're like, I'm not going to share unless I know they're going to listen. Well, then you may not ever share. You've got to trust God on this, friend. You've got to grasp the gospel really good and then pray for Holy Spirit proclamation power. And when those two collide, transformation is not only going to happen for them, but you're going to really learn that Jesus is with you. You're not proclaiming it alone. He's with you. You may feel alone, but that's a feeling. He's with you. He's caring for you. He's leading you. He has his arms around you. He wants to use you. Some of you need to ask God to make you a bold witness for Jesus. I think about our sister out there, Linnea Anderson, recently joined a running club out in Lakewood. Um, Our sister out there, you know, she's pumping 15 miles out on one run sometimes. So if you ever want to do that, show up with her for the 15-miler. But she's, she's joined this Lakewood running club with a bunch of people, and they're running. And you know when you're a really good runner, you can talk and run. Some of us are just glad to be running, right? Well, when you're a good part, you can run and, like, talk, and, and she's there. And 
one thing that God has really pricked on her heart is all these people I'm in running club with are lost. And she's begging God to give her an open door and the boldness and the articulation to give a clear, bold, scriptural witness of the gospel for those who she's running with. I was at the uh, library yesterday. Um, We've got a great library system here, by the way. Um, maybe a thought would be for you to join a book club. There's so many book clubs in here. Like You could join with a bunch of lost people and read a book that is... Maybe sometimes what lost people read. You don't believe any of it. You don't submit to any of it. But you're there to read. You're there to build relationships. And you're there as you walk to the parking lot to build those caring relationships, asking God for the opportunity to give a scriptural, clear, bold witness of the gospel. That's a really easy way to do that. Join the book club. And you've got to read, by the way. You can't just show up. You've got to read. You've got to read the book. You've got to come ready to discuss. So a book club. Uh, invite people in your neighborhood. Have a, fan, have a, have a neighborhood barbecue. It's amazing, when I smell barbecue, I just start gravitating that way, don't you? If you'll get the barbecue going in the yard, people will just smell it, and then you'll have your door open, you'll say, hey, you want a burger? They're probably going to say yes. You've got to get intentional, see? If you don't take these steps of intentionality, then you're just going to come next Sunday and be like, oh yeah, I need to do that one day. No, do it this week. Look at your calendar this week. How are we going to do this? What you're doing, friends, is you're building bridges of grace that can handle the weight of the gospel. You're building bridges of grace that can handle the weight of the gospel. See, hanging out with lost people is very risky, and you're going to be put in some very uncomfortable situations. But if you only hang out with church people, how is anyone else ever going to hear the message of the gospel? We gather and we scatter. Gather and scatter. Gather and scatter. We're gathered, now we've got to get out of here and go scatter. And we go scatter with the gospel, and we plant seeds all over this area, and we beg God to make them pick it up and believe it and read it. It's good stuff, friends. So the personal, second of all, is mass evangelism. Mass evangelism is to a large crowd. Peter's doing it here in Acts 2. Jesus spoke to large crowds, the Sermon on the Mount. Paul spoke to large crowds. You realize that theater friends in Ephesus held 25,000 people with no microphone? And they say at some point, so you could whisper there. You could whisper down low, and you could actually hear it up top. The acoustics were so rich in those places. So mass evangelism, it's a biblical thing. We see it happen. Getting closer to today, George Whitfield, 18th century. If I could be anybody in church history, I'd be George Whitfield. Not, I, don't, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be the husband he was or the dad he was because he was terrible. But I'm talking about just the idea of riding from town to town on horseback, jumping off and proclaiming the gospel to massive amounts of people and seeing people be saved. That would be the life. Then getting closer to today, we see Jonathan Edwards awakening. He's preaching to massive amounts of people. D.L. Moody so on and so on and so on and so on and so forth. Whether you agree with the, the ministry of Billy Graham or not, Billy Graham, God used him to proclaim the gospel. And there are many who've come to faith in Jesus today. Maybe some of you are sitting here today because of mass evangelism at a place, youth, children's ministry. Finally, there's local church evangelism. Local church evangelism. Local church evangelism is where a body of believers just like this gather, proclaim the good news of the gospel to each other, through our gatherings, through our groups, through our sermons, through our songs. Furthermore, to proclaim the gospel in our services is actually in our liturgy or our order of service. We sing a song about the character of God, and then we confess our sin, and then we celebrate our sins are many, but man, His mercy is more, and then we celebrate Jesus as King. There's no one like Him. We adore you. That's the gospel. God, sinner, response, Belief. So this is in your, your bulletin here. Those who are being changed by the gospel are instruments of God with the gospel. Those who are being changed by the gospel, you're being changed by the gospel. As you go deeper and deeper in the gospel, as you believe the gospel more and more for your marriage and your singleness and your finances, you believe God's love in Jesus in the midst of that, you're going to be growing. And as you're growing, now you're a great conduit for that gospel to flow through you. So 41, he closes, those who received his word, that is, they, they changed their mind, they embraced Jesus, notice they were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, friends, Jesus made a promise, Matthew 16, I will build my church, and that's what he's doing here. I'm going to build my church, I'm going to send Holy, the Holy Spirit so that you could have proclaiming power, and I'm just going to keep building people and gathering them into my kingdom. Now, I want you to see this as we close. Save people belong to a church. They didn't just come to Christ. They actually 
came into the fold. They came into the body. You're going to see next week how they did body life together. They didn't just have their own personal, me and Jesus, private relationship. Your faith is personal, but it was never meant to be private. It was meant to be public with other people who also love Jesus and are seeking to follow Him with all that they do and say. And so, let's close and let's ask God for the ability as we leave here to rest on the gospel and then be conduits of that gospel. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, just thanking you, oh God, oh God, for adopting us into your forever family, for calling us, regenerating us, justifying us, sanctifying, making us more like Jesus right now. One day you're going to glorify us and we will forever be in the kingdom of God. We realize that salvation is a divine work. It is your work, God. But we're grateful for the double work of the gospel, that God, you're always going to do the saving, but you've given us an incredible opportunity to sit on the front lines to see men and women be changed, for the light bulb to come on, for them to, to say, I, I want to receive Christ, and, and I feel so different now, and the weight of sin is gone, and, and I love him, and I want to follow him. Lord, thank you. Would you send individuals here to this body? God, would you send them to Gateway Church, Old Brooklyn? Would you send them to other places that we know are being faithful with this gospel? And God, would you raise up a discipleship pipeline that Northeast Ohio, the gates of hell would be shaken, not because of us, but to your name, to your name be the glory. Oh God, I pray that you would help us be intentional. Would you take these 30 seconds right now and just say, what is my next step as a Christian? Do I need to join a book club or a running club or a softball league or a chess club, a what are ways that I could build a relationship with people so that I could look for an inroad to give a scriptural, clear, bold presentation of the gospel? Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom on how to do that. Help us know that in the moment you're going to give us what we need. And God, may you save. May you save. And may you help us go deeper and deeper in this gospel of grace. God, we pray for someone this morning. Maybe they're here and there, or they're watching online, and they're, they're kicking the tires on Christianity. They're trying to figure out what is all this about, but they don't truly understand the gospel. God, I pray that they would hear that, God, you are holy. We are sinners. Jesus is the only way to be saved, and that they would repent and receive him. God, would you just give us opportunity as a body to have conversations with those folks? And God, may you get the glory and you get the praise through it all. Seal these truths in our mind. The gospel is a divine work. It is a double work as displayed here in this beautiful text that you're so gracious to give us. We pray all of this by the Spirit to the glory of your name, Father. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.